0: So, oh. I'm going to share with you today, we are going to talk over the next couple Sundays a whole bunch about the Old Testament. It should be interesting. Um, I have been taking a class, just it's just called Intro to the Hebrew Bible, and it's all about the Old Testament, and I wanted to share with you from that. So, right from the get-go, I'll just let you know that um, everything I share with you today and next Sunday It wasn't like some big revelation I got. It's from my class, most of the material is. So when you see the tables and the quotes, they all came from my class, which was done by the people at the Bible Project, and more specifically, Dr. Tim Mackey, who's a seminary professor and a teaching pastor in Oregon. So that's kind of what I developed all of this different stuff from, but it's been so great, and I wanted to kind of break it down and share some of it with you guys because it was really um, a good thing for me to go through and work through and help me see some things from a different perspective than I had looked at before. So to get started, i just ask you the question, how do we deal with the first three quarters of our Bible, the Old Testament? When you think about it, it is the first three quarters. It's a huge chunk. So what's contained in there? Well, there's a lot of stories that people just don't know what to do with them. Um... There's some that on the surface, at least, they seem weird. Or they're even kind of off-putting, like, why does God do some of the things that he does? Why does he allow some of the things that he does? And how can that be reconciled with the picture that we see of Jesus in the New Testament? I mean, these are questions that I've heard asked and that I've even asked myself. Why does it look like God protected Abraham when he lied and allowed his wife to be taken by Abimelech? Why did she-bears small kids for calling Elisha Baldy? These are all questions that people have when they read these stories. They're like, wow, this is intense. What's, what does this all mean? And um, I know for myself, my own coping strategies when I'm reading the Old Testament and I get to a story that doesn't make sense, I just sort of skip it. It's like, well, let's just go read the Gospels again. Or we could just go read the letters, at least the parts that we understand of those, too. Um, or sometimes I'll tell myself, well, God's ways are just higher than mine, and I don't know, and I'll just dismiss it. Instead of maybe taking a deeper look into what's happening in the stories, why is it explained this way, and how does this fit into the entire overarching macro story of the Old Testament? So that's kind of more what I want to get down into. And sometimes maybe I'm a bit afraid of it, and I just hope that no one will ask me what it means. (laughs) That happens sometimes, too. So I think that I'm not alone in some of these feelings. And I think the church has developed a lot of what I would call tidy Christian coping mechanisms for the odd things that we come across in the Old Testament. So we're just going to run through these quick the first good coping mechanism that the church often uses is the hero example model. So this is where we take stories from the Old Testament and we isolate a character and we sanitize the story and gloss over all the bad things about that person and then we elevate them as a hero and as an example of how we should be morally. When we do that, it takes away all the complexity of the story, which in itself contains a lot of the meaning. It's, and it also takes away our ability to relate to that character. Because these people are not one-dimensional, and neither are we. I mean, have you looked at yourself lately? You are incredibly complex. You are not just one thing or the other. You're not just this hero example all the time, right? I mean, at least I know I'm not. So it takes away our ability to see ourselves in the character when all the complexity is removed. And then the next step, the next tidy coping mechanism would be the theology answer book. And this is where you just use the Old Testament like a reference book. You just pick a topical thing, you go and look for it, you find your proof text, and you're done. And this works great until you find someone, a brother or sister, who has a different interpretation of that exact thing. And one good example of this is, uh, so you wanna hear women preach in church? Deborah, boom, done. You know, like obviously I don't disagree with your premise because here I am, but I don't think that settles it. I don't think you could just take that and use that as your proof text and just move on. And then the last one is the inspirational model. And this is where we just pick one-liners that sound nice, like, I know the plans I have for you. Or, I can do all things through Christ. These are legitimate. Like, this is real stuff. But do you ever get to a point where you feel like you've heard that applied in so many different ways that you're just like, what does this even mean anymore? Like, what was the context of this? What was happening when this was being said? Who does this even apply to? And it just, sometimes it just becomes like a trope that you've heard so much that you just want to go back and see what is the actual meaning of this? What is behind this? And I think those are good things to do. And I think all of these different coping strategies are honest because we know that this stuff is important. We know we're not just going to throw it out. We know that there's meaning here, that this is significant, that the Old Testament is significant, and it's part of God's word, and that it's meant to change us. We know that we're meant to see ourselves in these stories. We're meant to learn from these things. So we're trying to figure out, how do we do this? And often by trying to simplify in these ways and others, we miss depth that is there. And so many times, especially if, say, you've grown up as a Christian. You've grown up in a Christian home. You've grown up with the Bible. You're very familiar with these stories. You can become familiar with them in a way that's not helpful. It's almost like an over-familiarity. And when we figure out that that's the way that we've familiarized ourselves with the Bibles, we the Bible, we kind of have to take a step back. We have to set aside our modern assumptions and our presumptuous modern ideas and we have to encounter the text again on its context we have to look and see what are the biblical authors trying to say to us we have to re-encounter it so with that in mind let's look at some clues as to how Jesus and the apostles viewed their Old Testament oh my goodness that's small It's bigger back there. All right. So how did Jesus and the apostles view their Old Testament? So we'll look at Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27. And this is on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus has died, and he is resurrected. And these people have only heard tell of it. They're just hearing about all these crazy things that have happened in Jerusalem. And they're confused. They just don't know what to think. Jesus himself comes and he talks to them on the road. And this is what he says. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So first thing I want to point out here is where he says... Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer? Just a quick side note. Christ, in our English translation, is our English translation of the Greek word Christos, which means anointed one. And Christos is the equivalent of the Hebrew word Mashiach. Sorry, I'm from a cornfield in Missouri. That's the best I can do. Mashiach, um, which means Messiah. Messiah. And this often, in the Old Testament, is used to refer to priests and kings. So Christ is a title, not a surname. It's not like Jesus was born to Joseph and Mary Christ, and now that's his last name. It's a title, and it means anointed one, which is important as we look back at the Old Testament and read prophecies about the anointed one to come. So what does Jesus mean when he talks, when he says, all the prophets, Moses, and the scriptures? And he's using the Old Testament to explain himself to these people. And he sees this as a very, he sees the entire Old Testament as very clearly pointing to himself. And that's what he means when he says the prophets, Moses, and the scriptures. So moving on in the story, these two on the road, they return to Jerusalem and to the rest of the disciples. And we'll pick up there, which is Luke. 24 verses 44 through 47. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, and the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So clearly, Jesus sees something that the Old Testament is about. I mean, he's just summarizing it here right for us. He's talking about God's ultimate plan to bring about salvation for whosoever will believe. Um, So Jesus doesn't think that this is a collection of weird and confusing stories Um, that he tries to distance himself from or explain to people. (laughs) like He clearly sees this as a unified story that leads to himself. And I think that they summed it up really well using this quote here from the class. The Old Testament is about an anointed representative who goes into death and suffering out the other side so that a whole new direction, repentance and forgiveness can open up for all the nations. Clearly, that's what he sees these texts as being about. And the later apostles shared the same conviction. So this will be Paul. And he's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy three fourteen through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the sacred writings that Timothy has been familiar with since childhood are the Old Testament. That's what he's talking about here. So the Gospels are still in formation mode. Paul's writing his letters. He's talking about the Old Testament here. And I find this interesting because he's referring to the entire Old Testament as wisdom literature, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And we tend to think of the wisdom literature as just the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, stuff like that. And he's referring to the whole thing as being for making you wise. And we know that the, uh, the word says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And I find that particularly interesting because clearly the Old Testament is pointing us to the fact that we need rescue. We need rescue from the just wrath of God. And it's telling us that we have to look outside of ourselves for that rescue. It's telling us that we have to look for the anointed one to come. And that anointed one to come is Jesus. So this is the wisdom that leads us to salvation through Jesus Christ. I just think it's cool because it's like a redefinition of the Old Testament. I mean, this is the macro essence of what this whole thing is about. There's a whole bunch of little subplots, but they all go back into this big overarching theme. So it does seem that there is some overlap and some difference in the way that Jesus describes the overarching essence of meaning in the Old Testament compared to how various Christians view that. Overarching meaning in the Old Testament. I find it also interesting looking at this and that the Old Testament is wisdom, that it, it makes you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. I find it interesting that myself included have often felt like the Bible is something that we need to defend or that we need to make compelling to people on our own. And what this says to me is that it already possesses that supernaturally inside of itself. And I don't want to say that apologetics is wrong because I don't think that that's true. I know that's a ministry that I value and that I really enjoy listening to. I think it's very important to do those things and be able to give an answer for your hope. But I don't think that we should ever forget that the Bible in itself these stories are compelling on their own because that is the way God made them to be. They're imbued with his supernatural power to lead people to himself. Himself, And I don't think we should forget that and see it as this thing that we have to prop up or that we have to do something to make it compelling. It's compelling on its own. Jesus is compelling on his own. Kind of reminds me of that quote about um, you don't have to defend truth. Because truth is like a lion. You just have to turn it loose. And to a certain degree, I really think that's true. And it applies in this situation. The truth is powerful. And just communicating these things that are true, I think, reveals the Lord to people in a supernatural way. All right. Oh, goodness. (laughs) So, um gonna look at the arrangement of the scriptures because it wasn't always the way that we have it now Um, so the Hebrew scriptures of Jesus and the apostles time were a three part collection called the Tanakh the Tanakh contains all the same books as the Old Testament but in a different order I really hope you can see that it's kind of small Um, so all the same books but in a different order So the title Old Testament is a Christian term that came about as a title in the 3rd or 4th century by early Christian scholars. Before that, this was most often referred to as the writings or the scriptures, just like we've seen Jesus and the apostles talk about it. Paul does use the title Old Testament one time in the New Testament. We find that in 2 Corinthians when he talks about how a veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. And what he's talking about is when in the synagogues the Torah portion would be read to the Jews. He's saying a veil remains that they don't perceive that the glory of the law has passed and the glory of the new covenant has come. That's what he's talking about. He's not meaning we should throw out the whole Old Testament. He's just talking about the righteousness that comes, that came through the law now coming through the new covenant that's what he's talking about so we don't throw out the Old Testament and if you refer back to Luke 24 what we talked about where Jesus is talking about the scriptures in terms of Moses and the prophets and the Torah and the Psalms how he's referring to all these things why does he refer to it that way like is he just hitting a Old Testament highlight reel like he's just hitting the high points going through and kind of numbering them off well, I would propose to you that that is not what he's doing, (laughs) that he's referring to it that way because that's actually the way that it was organized and that's how he encountered it in synagogues was in this specific order. So we'll talk a little bit more about the order. So Tanakh is an acronym for the three parts that make it up. The first part is... trying to find the red button which button is that the laser button you don't know so the first part is Torah which means law and it has five books that are exactly the same as our Pentateuch the next section is the Nevaim which is the prophets And it contains some books that we categorize as history in the Old Testament, followed by prophetic books named after people who wrote them. So you can kind of see where in the Tanakh, they have Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings categorized as prophets, whereas we have those in the history category, which I find interesting because part of the reason that we think that these are in the prophets as far as the Tanakh goes is because they really do tell a prophetic story of the fall of Israel and all the things that happened and how that leads prophetically forward to Jesus, the anointed one to come. And then the last section of the Tanakh is called the Ketuvim, which translates to the writings. And this kind of contains a lot of different stuff. So things that we would categorize as poetry. There is some things in here we would categorize as history and also Um, prophetic books so hence it's a bunch of different stuff it's called the writings so those are the three parts you see how it's all the same books it's just in a different order so you can kind of see how the ordering of our old testament makes sense you have the pentateuch and it's just one continuous narrative it goes through it's one continuous story Then you have history and all the poetry is together. And we end with the prophets in the Old Testament, which is just, it just makes sense. All the prophets forward pointing, and then we move on to Jesus and the Gospels. So the Old Testament has a logical order behind it, but so does the Tanakh. And it's not immediately obvious to us because it's not familiar. But there is a reason why it is ordered the way that it's ordered. Doesn't to look at it in the Tanakh ordering doesn't change any kind of meaning, it doesn't add, it doesn't take away. And reading the Bible in this order isn't going to open up some weird secret code for you where you like learn the name of the Antichrist or anything, it's just a different perspective, and it's really good to look at this different perspective. And many, many people have come to the Lord through reading the Old Testament in the order that we have the books, and it is fantastic. But it's also good to look at it from a different perspective. I think it's fascinating just because I know that this is the way Jesus encountered it. So I'd like to look more into this as well. One thing I think it really does do for us, and I found this so valuable and so cool, is it defamiliarizes us with something we've become very, very familiar with, our Old Testament. It forces you to look from a different perspective. And when you do that, when you read it in this way, you're going to notice things that you didn't notice before because it's just defamiliarizing you with it and forcing you to re-encounter it. And I think that that's a valuable thing to do. So let's take a look a little bit at how this works. Hmm. Well, I don't have Luke 51 in here. Well, in Luke 51, Jesus is pronouncing woes on the Pharisees. And he is talking about all the blood of the prophets coming down on their heads. All of the blood of the prophets that has been shed from Abel all the way to Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. So Jesus is pronouncing woes. He's saying all of this is going to come down on this generation. And his Jewish listeners would have been very, very familiar with the Tanakh, obviously, because they were Pharisees. So when Jesus says, all the blood of the prophets is going to come down on this generation, from righteous Abel all the way to Zechariah, he's talking about all of the prophets. And this is how you know that. So Abel, he is, his narrative is in the opening pages of Genesis And the narrative story of the death of Zechariah, the murder of the prophet Zechariah, is actually at the closing narrative of Chronicles. It's toward the end. So do you see how in the Tanakh ordering, Jesus' comment is illuminated because he's talking about all the way from the beginning, all the way to the end, all of those prophets. And those Pharisees would have known exactly what he meant by using those two guys He's talking about all the people in the middle. And I just think things like that are really cool because it illuminates what he was saying. And uh, it doesn't quite do the same thing in our Old Testament ordering. So, let's see. The next thing we'll do is we'll take a quick look at kind of scroll technology and how these things were made because that's part of the consideration too when you consider how they were put together. So, these pictures come from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and these are the oldest material scrolls of the Hebrew Bible. So to explain the history on these a little bit, there was a split in the Jewish priesthood pre-Jesus, and these scrolls were carried away from Jerusalem by the ones that left. And so Rome comes in 70, well, they've always been there, but the Romans in 70 AD destroy the temple. And after they do that, they go 20 miles away, and they destroy this community of Jews as well. And so the assumption goes that these people knew that the Romans were coming, so they took these scrolls, and they put them in jars, and they hid them in caves. And that's where they stayed until, let's see, they were found by shepherds in the late 1940s. And now we have them. And like I said, they're the oldest material scrolls of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And this is from a really cool website if you want to go check it out. It's called the Digital Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Isaiah Scroll is the most well-preserved scroll. It's actually almost the whole thing. It's all 66 chapters, but like there's just some chunks missing in, in different points. But it's the full 66 chapters. And I just wanted to point some of this stuff out to you. Um, So you can see here where, do you see how there's two different pens, two different inks? Um, One is slightly darker, and uh, the handwriting is different. So what they think happened here is scribe A was copying from one scroll to another. He was copying the Isaiah scroll, and his eyes were going back and forth. He was looking at the original and he was moving over here, and he was writing on the new one. And his eyes skipped the line. And so scribe B comes, and he inserts right here the missing text that scribe A missed. That's just really cool. It's just really neat that I, I just, it's incredible how God preserves his word over thousands of years. It's, it's amazing. And... um So that's what happened here. And then you'll see if you can see kind of up toward the upper middle there, there's some dots over a word. So what they think happened here was that there was a word inserted in the copy that wasn't in the original manuscript. So it's an addition that showed up in the later copy. So they mark it with these dots and we see this in our own Bibles where it says this portion of scripture was not found in the earliest manuscripts and they just make a note of it right there in your Bible so this is what it looked like in a scroll and then here is um, another one this one's kind of (laughs) cool so you see that again there's writing going on between two lines and he runs out of room at the seam of the scroll and he just takes it down into the margin of the other one That's kind of neat. It just shows, like, you're just copying a scroll and you're in a room. You're a human being, so you just find a way to make it fit. And I just, it just inspires me to think about how God chooses to partner with people. And it's just absolutely incredible because we are people and our eyes miss lines, and we get tired and whatever, and he still partners with us. He's amazing how he holds it all together. So, I just kind of wanted to show you how scrolls kind of work and how they were put together. So if you're gonna assemble scrolls like this into a logical collection, the beginnings and the ends of the scrolls are a good place to look for organizational cues, hyperlinks and connections to other scrolls. So these scrolls were assembled into collections and it's kind of like a quilt. Each one is independent And then they're all put together to make an overall picture. The whole collection comes together and kind of tells this macro story with each piece contributing to the story. So let's look at some of the editorial clues that we have that tell us how it fits together. Goodness. And um, they give us... They give us context. They show us other places to look in other scrolls to fill in the scroll that you're reading. So, most of the major prophetic books begin this way. They begin with these little editorial cues that make connections and that they add context. Isaiah 1.1 1, 1 says, This is the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So when you read that, it's just one simple editorial clue that is at the beginning of the Isaiah scroll. And if you're a Hebrew, this is going to be a huge mental upload for you. They're telling you who this person is, who was king during that time, and these, if you know that history, you're going to have this huge mental upload of all of this information, and to get context on, more context on Isaiah, you would refer back to 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles there, and if you go and study that, and then you study Isaiah, you're just going to have that much more context, and it's just really cool how all of that works together, how the Bible provides context for itself. And a lot of times we can look outside and research cultures and different time periods and things that were happening in history around biblical times, but it's also pretty incredible how much context the Bible provides for itself. And the Bible should always be our first source when we're looking for context on something. We can often find a lot of it at other places in the Word. Like if you're reading through Psalms and you want to understand more about that, you can also look at the history of David and find out where did these things correspond. And that can be really fascinating fascinating. and be a huge study payoff for you if you want to go down that route. So like I said, this happens a lot um, in the major prophets. We see it with Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, which say, these are the words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests, in Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. And through the days of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. That is a huge amount of context at the beginning of that. And if you think about that in terms of scrolls, if you think about that in terms of separate documents, so this is just its own scroll, and it says this at the beginning of it. So now you can go find these other scrolls and begin to see the connections between the different writings, which is incredible, because God orchestrated all of that. He worked through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and people to write all of these things, and the way that they're interwoven into each other is really quite beautiful. So that context refers us back to Second Kings and Second Chronicles again. And then you'll see the same sort of editorial clue, really simple here at the beginning of Song of Songs, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> it just says the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. <laughs> so as you read that, you'll think, okay, maybe I should go read about Solomon to understand more context around what is being said here. So those are just some really basic, simple, editorial cues that are given at the beginning of scrolls that show us what else we can look at. And I just, it's amazing to think about Hebrew people in ancient times being a predominantly oral culture. And they memorized many, many, many things. It wasn't like us where we just have a Bible in our home. They memorized these things. And reading something like that they have this big mental upload of all of this context that builds out this really big picture that's happening at the beginning of each of these books I just think that's really neat I would like to think more like that I would like to have more biblical knowledge where when I read that I know oh okay this is the person that was king he was a bad king or he was a good king and all of these things factor in I just think that's really cool all right so finishing up while we don't live in this culture you know we have like TVs and codex Bibles you know that are bound together and nice and orderly we can still develop these skills we can develop these kinds of study skills that help us understand the depth of meaning and all of the deep context that's there we can work at that to bring it along that's kind of what i want to do next week is show you more connections, more of how the ordering of the Tanakh is connected and um, just how cool it is. So here's the last thing I want to take a look at today. This is from Luke chapter 2, 25 through 32. So there were so many Jews on the scene that were expecting the Messiah to return and liberate Israel from Roman rule. They were expecting a king to come And physically take over. Kind of like what they had experienced before. They wanted a king. And they looked for that physical king. And it was to their downfall. A lot. And we see in the gospels. Over and over and over again. How Jewish leaders. Jewish people rejected Jesus. They rejected him over and over. And eventually. (laughs) They were responsible for his death. They had him killed. And but. There were people, there were Jewish people on the scene who got it. And to look at them is really cool. And this is one of them. Um, This is Simeon. Now there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Led by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and blessed God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. (laughs) So Simeon was one of the ones that got it. He had been reading these scrolls. He had been reading the scriptures. And he knew he was waiting for the anointed one. He had all of this anticipation that had built up inside him. Can you imagine what this must have been like for him to lay his eyes on the anointed one to see Jesus? What he had waited for his whole life. It's just incredible to think about these people who got it. And I love this quote from the class that really sums it up well. It says, There were Jews who got the message before Jesus was on the scene. For them, seeing Jesus was like watching a silhouette get filled in by the face of Jesus of Nazareth, but the silhouette they got from the Hebrew Bible. Isn't that such a cool picture? There's a silhouette that they had. They're they're waiting for the fulfillment of this. And when they see Jesus of Nazareth, it's like that silhouette gets filled in and there's flesh on it and it's real and he's there and the time has come and it just makes me think about us and you know how we have a bit of a silhouette. you know We are waiting for the fulfillment of the word of God. We are waiting to see Jesus in the flesh. We're waiting to look on his face and think about how you would feel when that silhouette is totally filled in with flesh and you could... <laughs> It's like, how can you even talk about it? It's what we all wait for. I mean, it's our joy. It's joy unspeakable. And I want to read my Old Testament like Simeon read his. You know, I I want to understand it the way he understood it. And that's kind of what inspired me to keep going because it took me forever to get to this class. <laughs> and, uh, but that story just really stuck with me. And I think there's so much value in that, even for us as Christians, is just reading it from his perspective and understanding it just the way that he saw it from his context is so valuable. So considering that, there's good reason to learn more about it there's good reason to learn more about how Simeon read his Old Testament. So that is where we will stop for today, and next week we'll get more into that. Lord, I just want to thank you so much for your word to us, for your word for us, Lord. It is incredible. I am amazed at how you partner with people, about how you work through people via your Holy Spirit to write your word, to preserve your word, it's it's incredible, Lord. You are so powerful. You are so big. You are so good. Lord, we just, we love you. I just marvel at how your word and your spirit work together. It is incredible. It is not lacking in any way. What you have done is just so marvelous. God, may we just never hold it in contempt. Maybe always take it seriously. It is—it's sacred. It is so important. And we love your word, Lord, and I, I pray that you would open it up to everyone who wants to seek you through your word, Lord. That you would just bring them revelation that would knock their socks off, Lord. That would change them from the inside out. That would change their hearts, Lord that they wouldn't just see it as some chore or something that they just need to do every day, oh, I read my word, now i got to check it off, but that it would just come alive to them, Lord, because it is living. So, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to clear out the distractions and help us to focus and just take it in. Thank you for it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.